0: This is an ABC
1: podcast. The
0: voice belongs to Stephen Stewart, an Indigenous man from the north of Western Australia. He thinks he might be 109. There's no birth certificate. But we know he was a boy back in 1918 because he scratched his name on the side of a windmill and it's still there. We've been together from a young time. I missed him. We come come here to build this place up. Being alive and, more importantly, healthy and active at 109 is a considerable achievement, (laughs) but still a rarity.
2: You would be the last left of your generation.
0: Yeah, last one, I think. Me, all gone, mothers. Like all my elbows, all finished. Life expectancy has increased markedly over the past few centuries, but most people still find old age debilitating. Hello, Anthony Funnell here. Welcome to Future Tense. We're conditioned to think of the aging process as inevitable. And for millennia, humans have been haunted by the specter of their own mortality.
1: Because I could not stop for death. By Emily Dickinson. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held, but just ourselves, and immortality. We slowly drove. He
2: knew no... Basically the whole of human existence, the aging process has been this sort of inevitable and frankly slightly grim thing that happens to, well, everyone who survives that long. And I guess back in the, deep distant human past, it was anyone who was lucky enough to survive that long
0: but a growing number of scientists now believe there's nothing inevitable about either ageing or death. Their research and its implications are the subject of today's show. Andrew Steele, a computational biologist and author of the book Ageless, the new science of getting old
2: without getting old. I think what we understand now with the sort of uh, advances in modern biology is that the ageing process is this collection of different biological changes, and we understand what those changes are, and we can even start to take the first tentative steps of doing something about them. And the other thing that we've really come to understand with more recent advances in biology is just how... Well, you know, we, we say aging is universal, it's certainly universal within humans, it's basically almost universal within mammals, so, you know, our cats and dogs age, our farm animals age, but actually there are a handful of creatures in the world which have something called negligible senescence, and that means that they don't have an increased risk of death as they get older, they don't get increasingly frail, they basically stay youthful for an extended period of time before finally just sort of shuffling off their mortal coil almost at random, and these are animals like tortoises, and if we're the reason I said mammals, it's only almost universal, there's actually a mammal as well called a naked mole rat, which is this tiny little wrinkly rat that can live for up to 30 years and just like that, you know, as I say, doesn't seem to age.
0: But there's a difference between living for an indefinite period and the notion of immortality, says Dr Steele.
2: I'm really cautious about talking about immortality. Firstly, because I think it sort of conjures up these images of sci-fi dystopia, which is just so far from the sort of medical reality we're in here. What I'm trying to do is increase the healthy length of life, what scientists sometimes call the health span. And the lifespan will probably increase as a side effect. But the most important thing is that we want to get rid of disease. You know, We don't want to have people who are living to 120, but spending their last 40 years in a nursing home. The critical thing is that ageing is responsible for all the biggest killers in the modern world, things like cancer and heart disease and stroke. Even when we look at coronavirus, that is substantially worse when it afflicts someone who's elderly. Someone in their 80s is literally hundreds of times more likely to die of COVID than someone in their 30s if they contract it. And so you know, what that means is that by understanding the ageing process, we can defer all of these diseases by making people effectively biologically younger and therefore more resistant to all these terrible things that happen to us as we age.
0: And just picking up on a point you made there, there could be substantial benefits, economic benefits, for society in being able to slow down some of the ageing process.
2: Yeah, there's literally trillions of dollars on the table here because, you know, the single biggest items of health expenditure are looking after old people, basically. The average 80-year-old has five different medical diagnoses and they're taking about the same number of medications in order to treat those diagnoses. Then there's pensions and there's social care. Aging is just phenomenally expensive. So that means that by deferring this process, even by just a few years, we could potentially be saving trillions and trillions of dollars worldwide.
0: I want to ask you about some of the science involved in all of this in just a second. But there's been an, an awful lot of interest, hasn't there, particularly from Silicon Valley and uh, some of the, the big tech investors in this idea over the last you know 10 or so years, hasn't there?
2: Yeah, and there was a very big high-profile investment made by Google in a company called Calico. They, they started this company. It's the California Life Company, and the idea was that they were going to try and use sort of big data approaches to understand and unravel and potentially you know, come up with treatments for the aging process. What's really interesting is that a lot of these Silicon Valley approaches, I mean, Calico is a really great example, we just don't really know what they're doing. They're such a secretive company. you know. Maybe they're sitting on the elixir of life, but they haven't announced it yet, certainly. So it's just a question of watching and waiting. I think, actually, a lot of the most exciting stuff at the moment is happening in science labs and in biotech stuff rather than necessarily being driven by Silicon Valley, at least at the moment.
0: And a lot of the hype around this, a lot of the the talk of immortality, that's come from the involvement of, of these tech companies, hasn't it?
2: It's sort of this idea of a sci-fi dystopia, isn't it? Of billionaires living forever while the rest of us trudge on in sort of mortal servitude. And I think one of the stories that's really captured the public imagination, in fact, I saw um doing the rounds just a week or two ago, it's this idea of injecting young blood to try and rejuvenate the aging body. And this idea that some Silicon Valley tech billionaires have been trying to, you know, make use of that process. However, I think if you drill down into the science, the science is actually, you know, it's more complicated than that, you know, it's not as simple as injecting yourself with the blood of young people, which I guess any young people listening will be glad to hear. But it's also just much more fascinating because by understanding some of the science behind that, where scientists have shown that there are various differences between the blood of old and young mice and various things going on inside that blood that can accelerate or slow down the ageing process that can even rejuvenate an older mouse. It's not going to be as simple as jabbing ourselves full of blood from young people, but there is definitely some really exciting work going on from that avenue.
0: What does the science tell us today about why we actually age, the processes involved?
2: I break it down into 10 what are called hallmarks of aging, and this is based on a 2013 scientific paper of the same name, which actually had nine hallmarks. I've shuffled things around a little bit for the book. But the idea is that we've got these various underlying biological processes that are responsible for all of the different aspects of aging, from cancer to heart disease to wrinkles and gray hair. And these are things like damage to the DNA, that's the instruction manual inside all of our cells. It can be damage to the cells and molecules inside our body. And then it can be damage to whole systems, which are sort of aggregations of these smaller forms of damage. So things like you know, reduction in the efficiency of the immune system, which is responsible for everything from, you know, increased risk of coronavirus, as we've uh, all been very familiar with in the last year, to increased risk of things like cancer. So basically, it's a succession of various different causes. And the idea is that by going after each of those causes, we can potentially slow them down and prevent multiple age-related problems simultaneously.
0: So we shouldn't think about a cure for ageing coming along at some stage out of the blue, This is really an iterative process, isn't it, in terms of the science and in terms of, as you say, dealing with some of these medical issues.
2: It's funny, I actually do like to use the phrase a cure for aging, even though sometimes it raises the hackles of some of my scientific colleagues. And the reason isn't that I think it's going to happen next week. It's not because I think it's going to be a single pill, you know, some lone genius is going to come up with that's going to immediately make us all immortal. But I think it's really important to imagine what a cure for aging might actually look like. And I think your question, you know, puts it very well. It is going to be this iterative process, you know, maybe if you're lucky enough to be alive when some of these first anti-aging therapies are developed, you might live a few years longer in good health. And that means the scientists who are then, you know, at work during your lifetime have a few years longer to develop the next round of treatments and so on. And so there's going to come a point, you know, perhaps some generation, perhaps our generation, perhaps the next generation, perhaps the generation after that, they're not going to realise that ageing has been cured, but they're just going to slowly notice that as medical advances increase, life expectancy is moving faster than, you know, their funeral is approaching. And therefore they're going to live much, much longer in good health. So I do like to talk about a cure for ageing, but it's not as simple as this idea of a miracle pill, I think. Dr Andrew Steele.
0: Now, one of those who's been working intently on the process of ageing is geneticist David Sinclair, and he's co-director of the Paul Glenn Centre for the Biology of Ageing at Harvard Medical School. He and his team have been looking at the role played by what are called epigenetic markers.
3: There are two types of information in our cells. One we hear a lot about, it's our DNA, the genetic code, and that's a digital format, four letters, A-T-C-G, and that's pretty stable during life. What we've learned in just in the last five or so years is that there's another level of information that is not as stable, and we call this the epigenome. And you can think of the epigenome as the parts of the cell that read the digital genetic information, much in the way a DVD encodes music and then the reader, which in this case is the epigenome, is reading that music. And we think what's going on during aging, perhaps in large part, is that the reader doesn't do a good job. And even though the music of our lives, of our youth, is still in the cell, the cell just doesn't read those genes in the right way. But really, that their main function is to tell cells how to behave from being an embryo all the way through to death. The epigenome is these chemical marks, which we call methyls, laid down very soon after fertilisation, when we're just a, a you know a newly merged sperm and egg. And as the cells divide, they specialise. Of course, you need to build a brain and a liver and a, and skin, and these chemicals, these methyls, are laid down in different patterns to assign the cell type and that's how you build an eye, that's how you build a liver. The problem we think during ageing is that that beautiful pattern that's there when we're born eventually fades away and the brain and the liver and the skin forget to function like they did when we were young.
0: So according to your work, according to your theory, if you can manipulate these epigenetic markers you may be
3: able to have an impact on the process of ageing, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. You're talking about the cutting edge of science right now. The question really is, do these chemical marks that are laid down when we're young, do they really have a function during aging? Are they responsible for diseases? Are they responsible for diabetes, cancer, even blindness? And you can read these, of course. We can say, okay, somebody with that pattern is probably 85 years old, even though their birthday is 75 years, candles-wise. And the question is, is that person literally older biologically. And we think they are because these patterns that predict your age, if you're older than your birthday candles would suggest you typically have a shorter lifespan. And if you've smoked and you haven't exercised and you've become obese through most of your life, you get this accelerated aging pattern. But what I was proposing and have proposed in my book and a recent paper we published in nature is that that clock that we're measuring may not just be a clock on the wall. It may actually govern time it may govern our age. And the best test of that is to change the clock and see what happens.
0: And you suggest, don't you, that not only if you if you manipulate these epigenetic markers that you can influence the process of ageing, but that it's theoretically possible that you can actually
3: reverse it to an extent. Explain that to us. Well, it used to be theoretical. Our recent work that we published in Nature in December shows that it is actually possible. We Used a three gene combination. These three genes are normally turned on in embryos when we're very young, but as we get older, we don't turn these genes on. They're silenced, as we call it. And the question that we had was if we turn on these early embryonic genes in an adult animal, in this case, we use old mice that were blind, among other things, but we looked at their eyes specifically, can you reset, use those genes to reset the age of the eye? And if you do that, does anything happen? And what we discovered to our delight was that. We could not just turn back the clock, but time went back. The age of the eye went backwards and the mice got their vision back. And that was, I would say, probably the highlight of my career so far over, over 30 years of research.
0: The suggestion there is then that aging isn't actually an inevitable process. That is, it's it's
3: not an inevitable biological process, is it? Well, that's exactly right. This is what I've been trying to yell from the rooftops for at least a couple of decades now, that we tend to think of aging as something that is inevitable and natural and therefore acceptable. And I'm I'm saying that aging is actually a medical condition. It's a very common one, but it's also treatable. And we're not just talking about gene therapies that I've just referred to. There are at least two dozen companies around the world developing medicines that could either slow down or in some cases reverse the age of organs and perhaps one day the entire body So it's not out of the realms of biology, and it's certainly within, I think, within many of our lifetimes that we will see the ability to be prescribed a medicine that would protect you not just against one disease, but against all major diseases that aging causes. In fact, 85% of diseases in the developed world are caused by aging. The other amazing thing is you could imagine that you get your body reset every decade or so by your doctor, by these treatments, and then you just age out again and you keep repeating that process.
0: Our understanding of the process of ageing is very much focused on a human experience, isn't it? But we do know, or scientists know, that there are other animals that don't age or certainly don't appear to age in the way that humans do.
3: Yeah, Antje, that's a really good point. Because when people say, oh, we've reached our maximum lives, that we cannot live much longer than this, all you have to do is point to other species that live much longer than us, that have evolved or currently exist, that they're at the top of the food chain and they've been able to put more of their resources into building a a long-lived body. We typically only survive till about 40 or 50 years of age before we had civilization. And our bodies are not built to live longer because that's a waste of energy. Whereas if you look at a whale, a bowhead whale can live a few hundred years and they're basically cousins of ours, biologically speaking. And there are trees that live thousands of years. So what I'm trying to say here is that There is no biological law that says that we we have to die at 100 or even at at 120. And that by learning from these other species and giving ourselves the benefit of youth, we can push off getting sick, not just profuse, but perhaps decades and live really healthy, productive lives up until the very end.
2: We've got so many different ideas. We've got literally dozens of ways to slow and reverse aging in the lab. So I'm pretty excited about a whole portfolio. But I think the the easiest to explain, unfortunately, also uh, for communication purposes, the most exciting is a class of drugs called senolytic drugs. They're called senolytic because they kill aged senescent cells. And these cells, they accumulate in all of our bodies as we get older. And unfortunately, they aren't just benign cells that, you know, accumulate but don't really do very much. They also emit this cocktail of toxic molecules that effectively accelerates the aging process. And we've done experiments with mice in the lab. You wait till they get to about 24 months old. Now, mice obviously have a much shorter lifespan than humans. That's about 17 human years. And even though these mice are already very aged, they've accumulated these senescent cells. You give them one of these senolytic drugs, it can clear out some of those senescent cells. And what you find is the mice basically get biologically younger. They live longer, so they live a few months longer, maybe a few years in human in terms, but they don't just do so by preventing one particular disease. They get less cancer, they get less heart disease, they can run further and faster on a little mousy treadmill. They even have better fur. So it's really globally reversing the aging process by targeting one of these hallmarks, these senescent cells. And it shows us that this is the way that we can intervene in aging. We can prevent, you know, potentially multiple, potentially even all of those age-related diseases simultaneously by attacking a root cause. And that's what I think is one of the most hopeful ideas at the moment. How much of the research that's going on involves human trials? A lot of it's going on in mice and labs all around the world, just because you know some of this stuff is quite cutting edge. Senolytics, however, are one of the handful of treatments that are currently in human trials. The first senolytic trial actually started in 2018. And what you often find with these anti-aging treatments is they start out, hopefully, as being treatments for specific diseases where we know that hallmark of aging is involved. So, for example, with the senolytics, we know that senescent cells are uh, sort of crucially involved in things like arthritis things like age related macular degeneration which is a form of blindness you get as you get older with lung fibrosis which is obviously a lung disease that again is predominantly found in older people and the idea is that if these senolytics can slow the progression of these diseases and if they're particularly importantly if they're safe we could potentially see them branching out you know and giving them to people who are what we'd currently consider healthy. It's just that they were born a long time ago and have accumulated a large number of senescent cells. And I'm really confident that because these things are already in human trials, it's only going to be a few years before these things are available in the clinic.
0: Which was going to be my next question, because as you know, as we all know, journalists love timelines. <laughs> so, uh, and
2: scientists hate them. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. So you think it's sooner <laughs> rather than later for some of these?
2: Definitely. And I think the the way that I get around this and try and satisfy both the journalists and the scientists is that I say a lot of these treatments are going to be around in time for many, many people who are alive today. And partly that's because some of them are going to be available in the near term. There's senolytics I've already talked about. There's the idea of repurposing currently existing drugs, like there's a diabetes drug called metformin, which there are hints might slow down the aging process and is is about to go into a massive human trial to check it out. So you know there are things that are really definitely going to happen in the next five or 10 years. Then even the longer term stuff, things like gene therapy, things like stem cells therapy, these do sound more sci-fi than just popping a pill. But, you know, these aren't centuries away, they're decades away. And so the idea is that, you know, if you're keeping yourself in relatively good health, if you can benefit from these nearer term treatments, then there's absolutely no guarantee that you won't be alive in time for a stem cell or a gene therapy that could potentially slow your aging down in a more comprehensive way.
3: You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future.
0: Now to the social and cultural side of living a significantly extended life. Here's ethicist Francesca Minerva from the University of Milan.
1: Some people think that if age and diversity or like life extending technologies were developed, they might be available only to very rich people. And this would make the difference between rich and poor people even wider than it currently is, because then poor people would die at a relatively young age, but rich people would be able to live for hundreds of years and in good health. Obviously, this is a serious concern, but I think it's a concern about how these technologies or medical interventions should be distributed if they were distributed as like normal health treatments are currently distributed by public health systems, then we wouldn't wouldn't have any bad outcome in terms of equality because poor and rich people will be able to access them in the same way and they would be just like, everybody would be able to get older. Some other concerns are about inequality, but with respect to future generations. So like if people just get older and older and the Earth has limited space and resources for everyone, then we would need to stop reproducing at the current rate or perhaps stop reproducing at all. And some people argue that this would be unfair to future generations because they would stop to exist altogether. So we would live in a society where at some point the number of people that can live is fixed and maybe we could bring into existence a few more new people from time to time, but obviously it wouldn't be at the current rate and that raises some questions about whether that would be fair to future generations.
0: And then there's ageism, a form of discrimination that's universal and likely to be difficult to stem, according to Sven Broadmerkel from Bond University in Queensland.
4: We would probably need quite a significant change in terms of how we view age. And aging. So, for example, um couple of months ago, the World Health Organization released a global report on ageism. And the report actually found that ageism is pervasive across more or less all the countries surveyed. They did a survey on more than 80,000 people in 57 countries. And findings were that about one in two people seem to harbor some sort of ageist attitudes or stereotypes. So if you know just imagine that we have an aging population in terms of you know having a prolonged life and we don't reverse the aging process as such meaning everyone more or less is running around in the body of a 30 year old but we are just basically prolonging the last phase of our lives we would probably need a quite significant change in our perspective on age and the ageing process and the inequalities that come with age and ageing.
0: Now, your academic focus is on marketing and advertising. How good a gauge is marketing and advertising (laughs) for the values and attitudes in society around this issue of ageing?
4: It's a really interesting gauge for what's happening in society and how we view certain values. There's an ongoing debate about what advertising actually does. Is it shaping culture? Is it just mirroring culture? But even if we approach advertising just as a mirror of societal values, studies show that older people are still significantly underrepresented in advertising, that older people are still represented in certain ways that don't necessarily reflect a proper, a normal aging process in a realistic way. So, for example, to me, it seems at the moment the take in the advertising industry of what older people are and what they do is to represent them as kind of slightly funny yet also ridiculous. So in that sense, there's actually, I think, quite a bit to do in the advertising industry to come to a kind of proper and realistic reflection of what ageing and older people are actually all about.
0: The connection between ageism and real age, a person's real age, is curious, isn't it? You can be 30 years old and still be a victim of ageism.
4: Most definitely. And this is, I guess, where often our understanding of what ageism actually is, is a little bit off track even in public debates we seem to link ageism predominantly to chronological age chronological age meaning either people who are old 60 70 80 or very young people but in the end ageism is actually rather a concept that's predominantly linked to social context and to power and then subsequently to inequality. The advertising industry itself admits in trade journals and public talks that the industry has a problem with ageism, but who's considered old in the advertising industry is someone who is approaching the late 30s, early 40s. Research shows that only about 10% of people working in the Australian advertising industry are older than 45, and similar figures are coming out of the UK and the United States. So we can see here probably not necessarily a strong cause-effect relationship, but at least a kind of correlation many people working in the advertising industry are young and what we see is an underrepresentation of older people and so we have kind of nice cycle going
0: and as you pointed out earlier ageism crosses all geographic boundaries and you know it's across all sorts of industries and areas of society how difficult would it be to battle ageism if we have an increasingly aging population
4: the interesting thing about ageism is that it's much more, or often at least, much more subtle than other forms of discrimination like sexism or racism. It's often kind of hidden in institutional practices, in certain kinds of ideas about what the best or appropriate age is for certain kind of jobs or professions or industries. The process as such of how ageism actually works seems to be somewhat hidden from our everyday experience. So it might come across as somewhat funny, but not necessarily as this overt form of discrimination that it actually appears to be when we look at outcomes, meaning who's working, what kind of jobs, who gets access to certain kind forms of training or career progression or something like that.
0: It's quite a large assumption though, isn't it, to assume that people would want to live to extended periods to say 130 or 150 years, even if they were perfectly healthy. I mean, a lot of people find their lives already quite stressful and difficult to deal with, don't they?
1: Yes, so I assume not everybody would want that and obviously this kind of treatment wouldn't have to be mandatory. So if somebody wants to live for much longer, they should be allowed to use this treatment, at least this is my view. But I also think that we struggle with thinking that we would want to live for much longer, because we always make this implicit association between living for a very long time and aging. But imagine I living your life as a 20, 30year old forever. That sounds like much more fun. That's something like something you would want to do for much longer. And that maybe would change the attitude of a lot of people towards living for a very long time. Of course, this might not apply to everybody. And philosophers had a lot of, wrote a lot of books and papers about aging and arguing that we would get bored, we would get tired. So there is really no point in trying to extend the human lifespan. But I personally disagree with that view. I think that if we were able to keep our brain and body as well-functioning as they are when we are young, we wouldn't really get very bored and very tired of living. We would constantly invent and find new things to do. I'm just not sure, I'm not really convinced by this argument that life becomes boring after 100 years. I think it does now because we become old, but it wouldn't if we were staying young for so long.
0: Bioethicist Dr Francesca Minerva from the University of Milan and before her, Assistant Professor Sven Broadmerkel from Bond University. We also heard today from Professor David Sinclair at Harvard Medical School and biologist and author Andrew Steele. Thanks to James Liveris from the ABC in Western Australia, and thanks also, of course, to my co-producer and colleague, Karen Savanovitz. You've been listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Funnell. Until next time.